When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he may take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. And Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke, spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray. Father, we come once again to this thrilling story. And we come uh, not just because it's an interesting story, uh, not just because it teaches us uh, fascinating things about history. Uh, We come because these words are given to us from you. And they are words of life. They are words of truth. Uh, They are words that carry uh, not only your truth, but also your power and the promise of your presence. And so we do ask that you would accompany these words with the work of your Holy Spirit. Uh, We ask that he would open our eyes, our ears and our hearts to receive this, not just as an interesting tale, but to receive it as truth, transformative truth about us. And about who you are for us. 
And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Menus stress me out. Some of you know what I mean. I'm about to put down a significant amount of money on a meal, and there's this paralyzing possibility that I might make a bad choice. That I might spend my money on food that I don't like. Menus a mess with my desire for predictability and clarity. Mess with my desire for clarity and predictability. Esther 4 is a menu moment in this narrative. God's people, they are, they are living far away from home. They are living in a decadent culture. And they are living with an enemy who is plotting for their total annihilation. And in the midst of all of that, through very morally ambiguous means, Esther finds herself at the center, the power center of this culture. And she finds herself facing a choice. This is a menu moment with way more on the line than just a bad meal. She is faced with a choice, and this choice is nowhere near predictable. It is nowhere near clear. There was no way to know what the outcomes of her choice will be. We know the end of the story. But as one author said, Esther lives in the frightening middle. Esther lives in the frightening middle. Full of uncertainty, without clarity, without predictability. And isn't that where we live? Isn't that where we live? Don't we live in the frightening middle? We have a vicious enemy who desires our harm. It's one of the reasons I chose to read and study the book of Esther after we read and studied Ephesians. Ephesians in the New Testament ends talking about the reality of our powerful, dangerous, spiritual enemies. Esther is a story about life with enemies and the uncertainty that creates, the threat that that creates. Don't we, like Esther and Mordecai and the people of God in this story, don't we face choices every day, maybe not with as high a drama, but choices nonetheless, the outcomes of which we cannot predict? Choices which are not altogether clear what we should do, what will happen if we do make the choice. Don't we live in the frightening middle? Often without clarity. Often without predictability. Well, how should we respond to that? How should we live in the frightening middle? I want to look at the patterns of Esther and Mordecai and the community around them. And I want to see for us two responses. When life is unclear and unpredictable, we should pray and we should act. Okay? First of all, pray. 
The response of prayer. Notice here Mordecai. Notice how he responds to this threatening situation. Does Mordecai respond to this threat by calmly receiving and accepting the danger? No. No, Mordecai does not calmly accept this situation. In fact, he externalizes grief and fear and rage. Mordecai wears his heart on a burlap, torn, ash-covered sleeve. As he cries out, as he puts on sackcloth and ashes, Mordecai, his body is rebelling against this situation. His appearance is saying, this isn't the way it should be. And to do that was very socially inappropriate for where Mordecai was. You see, the Persian palace was supposed to be the happiest place on earth. The Persian palace was a place of extravagant celebration. And so to display sorrow, to display disappointment, was to question the effectiveness of the king. Which was a very dangerous thing to do. And so Esther sends her embarrassing cousin a change of clothes. And she says, Mordecai, you, you are in danger. You are being very inappropriate right now. You are embarrassing me. Here, put on this, these clothes, these more socially appropriate clothes. And of course, Mordecai, Mordecai refuses. Why does he refuse the change of clothes? Because he refuses to accept the numbing lie that everything is okay. He refuses to accept the numbing lie that everything is okay. And the people of God throughout the realm join him in this public display of their sorrow. This public display of their pain. But this was more than exhibitionism. This was more than just a political protest, although there is an element of that in there. This is more than that. You see, sackcloth and ashes, weeping and mourning, those weren't just means of self-expression. They were means of conversation. They were means of conversation with God. Lament was and is an essential expression of faith and worship for God's people. Lament, saying, this is not the way it should be, is an essential expression of faith and worship for God's people. The language of this chapter is heavily drawn from Joel, the prophet of Joel, and especially Joel chapter 2. Joel was speaking to the people of God hundreds of years earlier, and he was saying to them, disaster is coming. A consuming enemy is coming. And this consuming enemy is coming as an expression of God's judgment on you. But even though these people deserved God's judgment, God still says to them, return to me with all of your heart. Return to me with weeping. Mourning, 
lamenting. Rend your hearts, not just your garments. And if you will turn to me, God says, I will turn towards you. And it's as as if the words of the prophet echo are echoing in the ears of Mordecai and the people of God here living in the Persian Empire. And so they turn with their distress and they talk with God about it. They say not to just their culture, but they say to him, this is not the way it should be. God, would you intervene? Would you transform? Would you rescue Uh, Earlier uh, this summer, I was at the national denominational gathering for the denomination that we are a part of. And there was an evening worship service as a part of that meeting. And that evening worship service began with a time of quiet and tranquil reflection with soft music playing in the background. But there was a baby at that worship service who was not participating in that time of Quiet, tranquil reflection. He was hurting or he was hungry and he was letting us know about it. And he was not letting us know with just a little bit of fussing. He was letting us know with one of those full-throated, guttural baby yells. He was saying, this is not the way it should be. And of course his parents, they were embarrassed and they were trying to quiet him and they were trying to exit the room as fast as they could. But you know what? From a biblical standpoint, that yell coming from the people of God is just as much, if not more essential to worship. That yell of pain is a part of Of our ongoing conversation with God. It is an essential expression of faith. And you know, we don't face the extremity of Esther's situation. We need never forget that we have brothers and sisters around the world who often do face this extreme situation where they are attacked, where people are attempting to annihilate them. And we should never forget that. We should never forget to lament with and for them. But even when we don't face the extremity of this situation, we still live in the world as it should not be. Bodies that ail, relationships that fracture and harm, an enemy who seeks our woe, who seeks our harm, who seeks our destruction. And we need to talk with God about the pain of that. We need to speak with God about the distress, the disappointment, the sadness, the fear, and even the anger that rises up in our souls in response to a world that is not what it should be. You see, Christianity is not just a stoic, resigned acceptance of suffering. Nor is Christianity some Buddhist denial about the reality of suffering. Christianity is a full-throated, guttural yell. This isn't the way 
it should be. It is Jesus on the cross saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the Spirit of God whom Jesus gives to us, groaning within us, Romans 8 says, groaning with a sound that expresses pain that is deeper than words. So you see, our lament isn't only our cry. It's also God's cry. It is God's own spirit saying, this isn't the way it should be. Does your, is your conception of God big enough for that? Does your life of faith, does your life with God have space for lament? For joining Mordecai and the people of God here in Esther, for joining Job, for joining the Psalms, for joining Jesus, for joining the Apostle Paul, for joining the saints of God throughout history, crying out to God. The book of Revelation says, even those saints of God, even those saints of God who have died and gone to heaven are before God's throne saying, how long, O Lord, until you do something about the world that is not the way it should be. Does your life with God have space for lament? Does it have space for an ongoing, honest conversation with Him about your pain, about your disappointment, about your frustration, about your fear, and even about your anger? That's part of how we should respond to the frightening middle. When life is unclear and unpredictable, we should pray prayers of lament. We should lamenting worship God. But that's not all of our response. Our response to an uncertain world isn't just passive. It is also active. And so we should not only pray, we should also act. Mordecai's lament recruits Esther's involvement. Did you notice that? His lament recruits her involvement. In fact, the arc of her narrative in this story, the arc of her narrative is the movement from passivity to activity. This is the story of an emerging leader. Esther is called Queen Esther 14 times in this book, 13 of which occur after she says, if I perish, I perish, and and walks into the throne room of the king. She is emerging as a leader, as a hero. Uh, We see her sending, inquiring, commanding, commanding even her cousin Mordecai. She is emerging as a leader. We see her in this book skillfully, strategically manipulating the Persian political system in order to save and rescue her people. But that's not her most important action. Her most important actions are that we see her embrace who she is. Just as Mordecai and the people of God publicly display their sorrow, Esther 
publicly identifies with the plight and the hope of God's people. She owns who she is, not only as queen in Persia, but as daughter of God. And she acts out of that identity, courageously, assertively, becoming the hero God made her to be. God placed her in this place to be. But how does she do that? Why is Esther able to act with such courage in the face of so much uncertainty? Well, we found out why in Mordecai's recruitment speech here in Esther chapter 4. And he certainly appeals to her survival instinct. He says, if you want to live, Esther, you need to do this. But then notice how at the end of his speech, he connects to a larger motivation. He says, deliverance, relief, it will come. It will rise. That is a certainty. With all that is unclear in this story, Mordecai is clear about one thing. God's people will be rescued. Now, Esther, do you want to be a part of that? Do you want to be involved in that rescue mission? That's his, that's his recruitment pitch to Esther. He has certainty about God's promise and mystery about God's method. That's where her courage comes from. Her courage comes from a combination of clarity and mystery. Clarity that God will keep His covenant promises to His people. He will rescue them. He will be with them. He will be for them. Mystery about how He will do that. So Mordecai says, deliverance will come. Who knows, Esther? Maybe this will be a part of that work. Who knows? Maybe God has brought you to this place at this time for this purpose. And so she acts courageously out of that clarity about God's promise, even in the mystery about God's method. Three lessons for us from the actions of Esther. First of all, do not limit how and where God works. Do not limit how and where God works. I heard a great question this week. I heard someone say, if you, if you go into a Christian bookstore and you see a biography titled The Man God Uses or The Woman God Uses, what are your assumptions about that book? Most likely your assumptions is that it is the story of a missionary or the story of a pastor or an evangelist like Billy Graham. Esther should change those assumptions. Who is the woman God uses to rescue his people? Well, it's the woman who is in what we would consider the secular workplace. She is at the center of a decadent culture. Uh, She is a ceremonial figure in a pagan empire. And she got to that place through morally ambiguous means. Who is the woman God uses? It is Esther. And so, yes, God works through pastors, but he also works through plumbers and engineers 
and teachers and moms and dads and students and professors and lawyers and so on and so on and so on. Do not limit where and how God does your work. Who knows? Maybe you've been brought to this for such a time as this. Second lesson from Esther's actions for us. Do not limit where and how God works and do not wait for false clarity. Do not wait for false clarity. What does Mordecai say to Esther? Does he say, Esther, if you go into the king's throne room, I promise that he'll receive you and won't execute you. No, he says, who knows? Who knows, Esther? Maybe this is going to work out. Maybe. Don't wait for false clarity. I had a young man come up to me after a service. This was uh, last year. And, 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 I, and I really felt for him. He was, he was in, in a little bit of a distress. And, and he looked at me and he said, Pastor, I need you to tell me what to do. I need you to tell me God's will for my major in college. <laughs> And I knew his distress. I know that. I know that desire for clarity. Uh, and I knew that there was a part of him that, that genuinely he wanted to do the right thing. And that's why he was asking that. But there was another part of him, and I know it because it's a part of me, that wants the guarantee of success. The guarantee that if I do this, everything's going to work out okay. That's false clarity. Who knows? Who knows, Esther? Whether this is going to work out the way we hope it does or not for you. Now, how do we do that? That, that? that requires us to embrace the mystery of God's method. How do we do that? Well, while we should not wait for false clarity, we should rest in true clarity. To live within the mystery of God's method, we must trust the certainty of his promise. So again, Mordecai saying to Esther, who knows how this particular thing is going to work out, but I know one thing for sure. Deliverance, relief will rise for God's people. Deliverance and relief will happen. God will care for his people he will keep his covenant promise to be with them and to be for them deliverance will rise there is certainty there is clarity romans 8 that tells us that god's spirit groans with us in our pain also tells us that god works all things together for good for those who belong to him now that doesn't mean pain-free life that doesn't mean failure-free life. That means a life that in the end, as in in the resurrection, you will be able to turn around and look and say, God was at work for my good. How do we have that certainty? How do we have, in the midst of the mystery of God's method, how do we have the certainty of His promise? Well, remember what Esther is trying to do. She is trying to rescue her people by gaining the favor of the king. Right? 
And that word favor is repeated over and over and over again in the, in the next few chapters of this book. She's trying to gain the favor of the king. But what does she do before she goes in to try to gain the favor of the king? She says to Mordecai, have the people fast for three days. She says, I will fast for three days. Why? Because she knows that she needs the favor of a greater king. That word favor, it it is the word in the Old Testament for God's covenant love and loyalty towards his people. It is the word that describes his covenant commitment to be with them and to be for them. But that's the Old Testament. How do we know that we have that love and loyalty? How do we know that we have that covenant commitment? Well, we know it through Jesus. We know the certainty of God's promise through Jesus. Who who didn't say, if I perish, I perish. He said, nevertheless, not my will, Father, but yours. And then he perished. He perished under the disfavor of his Father. The disfavor of... That we deserved. He perished and he entered into the grave for how long? Well, for three days. And on the third morning, he rose. And after a time, he ascended into a better throne room. He ascended into the throne room of heaven. And just as we sang a few moments ago, he stands there right now and he prays for us. And his wounds guarantee the favor of God. The eternal love and loyalty of God towards us. That's how you live when life is unpredictable. That's how you live when life is unclear. It is to cling to that Clarity, the clarity of the gospel, which says that God's eternal favor is turned towards you through Jesus. And because he has entered that throne room, we can pray with him in response to lives that are unpredictable and unclear. And because he is in that throne room, even now, we can live in the frightening middle. Because we have the favor of the one who owns beginning, middle, and end. And who is at work through it all for his glory and for our good. Let's pray.